This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I'm thankful to uh, have the opportunity to bring the word this morning, uh, and I pray it is a blessing to you. It's good to see you all here. Uh, before we get started, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, as we sit uh, together now under your word, we submit to its authority and your authority over us. We pray that the truths that we see therein will apply to us and that your Holy Spirit will bring conviction where it is needed as we consider what it is and what it means to be your people. Lord, in all things we are thankful that you are a good and faithful God. Our only hope is in you. So Lord, we ask for your help now. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand and receive this implanted word with meekness so that we may produce a harvest of righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the more I watch the news and scroll social media, the more it starts to feel like I've become a stranger in my own culture. You may feel that way too. There was a time not too long ago when being a professing Christian in America was viewed as generally a positive thing. Um, But it seems like that's changed even within our own lifetime. One writer recently tried to describe the shift in American secularization as moving from a positive world to a negative world, a world or a culture that is opposed or even hostile toward the doctrines of biblical Christianity. And while this may not be a perfect analogy, or it's admittedly very limited to American culture, I think it points to a feeling of being reminded that we are not of this world. Christianity is, at its heart, a counterculture. But this has always been true of Christianity, hasn't it? We've enjoyed the privileges of a friendly environment in this country for more than two centuries, but the Christian church through the ages has always grown up in challenging and even openly hostile climates, and still is to this day around the world, which is why we should continue to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution. From the very beginning, Christianity was viewed by the dominant world power of Rome as something of an oddity, a superstition, and then eventually a threat to public order. When we read the New Testament, we're reminded that our brothers and sisters in that day and throughout the last two millennia have had to stand athwart the prevailing pagan culture and declare, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not the monarch, not reason, not science. Jesus is Lord. The church at Corinth was a church born into a very pagan culture such that these Christ followers could not have stuck out more clearly if they tried. Corinth, which is located in modern-day Greece, in that 
skinny part in the middle. I don't know if you know what Greece looks like. There's like a big part and a big part, and there's a little skinny isthmus in the middle. That's where Corinth is. At that time, it was a huge metropolitan city with something like, something like 800,000 residents, perfectly situated to be the hub of travel and culture and commerce in that area. Uh, Gordon Fee described it as at once being the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of that day. In other words, Corinth created culture while being steeped in sensuality. Yet in this hostile environment, the word of the gospel took hold, took root during the Apostle Paul's ministry. You can find a record of his time in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Paul proclaimed the gospel to Jews and Greeks, and he stayed in the city for 18 months, establishing the church there despite pushback from Jews opposed to his message of Jesus as the Messiah. During this period, some of the rulers of the synagogue were even converted, and eventually, Paul moved on and these believers remained. And other teachers like Timothy and Apollos were sent there to encourage the church and support the work. A few years after leaving, Paul begins corresponding with these Corinthian believers when he ministers from Ephesus, and he writes them multiple letters, of which we have two in our canon of Scripture. And it's to the first of these two letters that we look this morning. An important part of how a church grows in a culture that runs hard in the opposite direction is to remember who the Bible says we are. Because knowing who we are helps us know how then we must live. So this morning we're going to look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and see what Paul has to say to the Christians in Corinth and Houston about the church's identity, ability, and unity. Our study this morning has three main points, because that's how the text seems to break out pretty naturally. If you're taking notes, the section of t- sections of today's outline are as follows. Number one, we are called together as saints. Number two, we are supplied and sustained by a faithful God. And number three, we are united under one banner. We are called together as saints, supplied and sustained by a faithful God, and united under one banner. Let's see how Paul opens this precious letter. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you may know, letters from the first century were often written in a particular format. The sender would put his or her name up front, then specify to whom they're writing, and finally provide a general greeting before launching into the meat of the letter. You can see this in all of Paul's letters in the New Testament as well. While we might be tempted to pass over this introduction, as is often the case, it is rich with theological truth. Look how Paul describes himself. He says he is called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. The apostles were personally commissioned by Jesus himself to spread the gospel to the nations. Paul describes himself in chapter 15, verse 8 of this book, as the last apostle to whom the Lord appeared which tells us there have been no true apostles since Paul, no matter what some churches might claim. This statement in verse 1 underlines Paul's authority to teach and direct the church, but it also serves as a defense against 
the accusations and insinuations of some in Corinth that Paul's ministry was illegitimate or that he himself was unimpressive as a church leader. And he deals with this both in this letter in chapter 9 and in the next letter in chapter 10. Paul's assertion of apostolic authority is not based on his own wisdom or rhetoric, but solely on the one who called him. He is called by the will of God. Now, in verse 1, Paul also mentions that Sosthenes is with him. This is very likely the same Sosthenes who was at one point the ruler of the Jewish synagogue there in Corinth. Uh, Acts 18 describes how back in Corinth, during a riot of Jewish protesters, Paul was dragged before the Roman consul, and Sosthenes was beaten up by the Jewish mob. Now, he's mentioned here not because he co-wrote the letter, but because Paul is acknowledging him and his presence as a companion and fellow worker in ministry. So that's the from. Let's look at the to in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What a beautiful description. Let's break that down piece by piece first. The church of God in Corinth. This is the church, the gathered assembly in Corinth, who are God's, God's people. Remember, when we see that word church, it's not talking about a building. I appreciate how, how Sam introduced us this morning. This is the gathering of the church here. You don't go to church. You gather with church. We together here are the church at University Park. And so Paul says he is writing to the church the gathered assembly of God's people there in Corinth. They are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are literally made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. They are called to be saints. As Paul was called by God to be an apostle, these believers were called by God to be his holy ones. They are the sheep of the good shepherd Jesus who were far away in another fold, but heard his voice and followed him because they were his sheep. And they are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These Corinthians are part of a larger family made up of believers from every nation and tribe and tongue all called together by the same Lord. Now think for a moment about this sanctification that Paul is describing. Now, if you've read ahead in this letter at all, or in the past, or even just a few verses ahead in our section today, you'll know that this body of believers doesn't always act in sanctified ways. There are different senses in which Christians are sanctified, made holy. We are declared holy at salvation because we have been washed clean of our sins. Yet we are progressively, over time, refined and cleansed to the work of the Holy Spirit so that we grow daily in holiness of life. As one writer put it, God's holy people gradually become what they already are positionally, holy. However, we won't reach the end goal until we're finally in the presence of the Lord. We actually see this reflected a few chapters ahead in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can hold your finger on this page and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look what it says. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. 
Paul writes, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed, but you were also being continually cleansed and purified, sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Just as God called his people Israel in the Old Testament to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19, and he commanded them to be holy as he is holy, In Leviticus 19, so also God calls his redeemed church to walk in holiness as a royal priesthood before him. Peter actually talks about this in 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2. I'll read a little bit of it to you. If you want to turn there, I'm starting in verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. A little bit later, Peter, Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Later, he calls the believers a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These Corinthians, you Houstonians who claim the name of Jesus, you have been sanctified. You are not only sanctified, but you are saints. You are saints. You are his holy ones. And notice here that not only was the church body in Corinth called to be saints, but they were called to be saints together with all faithful believers. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, There are multitudes of saints whose faces we've never seen, yet Christ is theirs. There are some with whom we might not agree on all particulars, yet Christ is theirs just as much as he is ours. Christ is theirs and Christ is ours. Here is the grand bond of union between believers of different nationalities, of different languages. As believers, if we profess the same gospel and the same Lord, and the same baptism, we are connected across time and space to a vast family 
of believers. This is why some Christians describe being strangers in a foreign country until they meet a Christian who lives in that country and suddenly it doesn't seem so strange. Despite differences in language, despite differences in culture and experience, the bond that two Christians have who grew up on different points in the globe unites them. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, the hymn says. This bond that we have with other believers is sometimes even stronger than the bond we may feel with our blood relatives who are not in the faith. This reminder that we are saints together with all those who profess a true gospel should be an encouragement to us. We can find fellowship and common cause with other believers with whom we may disagree on some secondary or tertiary issues, but who hold firm to the fundamental truths of the gospel and the absolute authority of God's perfect word. No one pastor or church body or denomination has this perfectly figured out. But our command is to be faithful to this gospel that has been once for all delivered to the saints. We have a book, so we will follow what it says. And thank God for all believers who do the same. To the saints of Corinth, Paul gives his usual greeting and blessing in in verse number three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, actually I learned something this week as I was studying through this that the Greek words for grace and greetings have kind of a similar beginning. So it's almost as if Paul subverts the kind of standard expectation for the word greetings and instead he says grace. And I just thought that was, I don't know, word things I I think are interesting. It's my, my nerdiness coming through. Paul begins with a blessing. In his comments on this verse, Spurgeon actually notes that Paul prays grace first and then peace. And he writes, <clears throat> he writes, seek not peace first, for there is no peace for unregenerate people. That's a stark comment, but a very needed one in a very confused age. So my friends, I must pause here to make this point clear. The blessings of God's peace, the presence and gifts of his spirit, are the sole inheritance of his born-again children. While all human beings are created by God with dignity and value because they are made in his image, we are not all his children. Only those who have been born again can claim God as their father. Only those who have turned from their sins and trusted in the shed blood of Jesus as the just and necessary payment for their rebellion against a holy God can be adopted as a son or daughter of God, brought from spiritual death to spiritual life and given the gift of the Holy Spirit as the seal and guarantee of our inheritance with Jesus Christ for all time. So if you're here today, perhaps as a friend or a family member or a guest, and you've not turned from your sins and trusted Jesus, I must affirm what that dear old preacher said. You will not have God's peace. 
you will not have God's peace until you drink deeply of God's grace. But friend, that grace is available, free of charge, this very moment, to all who confess their sins and put their only hope in Jesus Christ. Today, on this Father's Day, you can come to know God for the first time as Father. Turn from your sins. Run to Jesus for salvation. Please don't leave this place today without talking to one of us about this. Lunch can wait. Eternity may not. So don't take it lightly. To the redeemed, Paul speaks the benediction. Grace to you and peace. From whom? From God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul moves on to a word of thanksgiving and encouragement about these Corinthian saints. Let's look at that in verses 4 through 9. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship and to the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says he gives thanks for this church to God. He prays for them and regards them warmly. He thanks God for the grace that is evident in their profession of faith, as well as the way that the Holy Spirit has gifted them. Now, we should seek to imitate our brother Paul in this way by praying for other believers, even ones that we know have some maturing to do. Ones who may get on our nerves every once in a while. Don't look around. You know what I'm talking about. If you don't know who I'm talking about, it may be you. We can still praise God for the work that he is doing in, in the lives of the believers around us as we ask him for wisdom on how best to love and encourage one another. And we should do that. In verse 5, he says that they were enriched in Christ Jesus in all speech and knowledge. Enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Something to note, to note here that the word enriched isn't referring to material wealth, but more to that their gifts and abilities of speech and understanding were strengthened through the Holy Spirit for the purposes of ministry. Persuasive speech and wisdom were qualities that were prized highly in, in the culture in Corinth there in, in Greece. But Paul notes that the Holy Spirit is giving them what they need to do the work. In fact, this sets up Paul's discussion later about spiritual gifts in which he uh, um, talks about how they are to be used and not misused in the context of ministry within the local church. Paul then affirms in verse 7 that the church in Corinth is not lacking in any spiritual gift as they wait for the revelation of Jesus, pointing to his eventual return, revealing, you know, revelation, talking about Jesus' return. Now, this verse should be an encouragement to us as well as any faithful Christian church. The Holy Spirit, who supplies spiritual gifts for the care and building up of the church body, has supplied and will supply what we need to function in obedience as we grow together in holiness and faithful ministry. 
So let us not neglect to pray to the Lord and ask him to supply our church family richly with the people and gifts we can use to proclaim his greatness in our community. Because he will do it. He will give us what we need because he's promised us that he will. And no, um, sorry. Look next at the promise there in, in verse 8. Verse 8. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, he not only supplies us with all we need through his spirit, but he sustains us all the way to the end. The word sustained is actually the same word that's used for confirmed in verse 6. Just as the testimony of Christ is proven true by the faithful profession of the saints, God is faithful to prove us true by holding on to us all the way to the end. Or as Paul says to the Philippians in his letter to that body, he who began a good work, to, began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What God started in you he will finish in you. He won't leave you half done. But we are not just kept to the end by Jesus. Look again at verse 8. We are kept guiltless in that day. Someone guiltless cannot be accused, for they are above reproach. Now, we who are Jesus' disciples know that we are not perfect. Not at all. If anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him, John says. What Paul's asserting here is that the called and redeemed saint of God is kept blameless to the end because the blame and condemnation has already been taken away. Remember what Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Later in that chapter, Paul doubles down on this. He writes in verses 33 and 34 of Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Matthew Henry describes it this way. Those that wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will be kept by him and confirmed to the end. Those that are so will be blameless in the day of Christ. Not upon the principle of strict justice, but gracious absolution. Not in the rigor of law, but rich from rich and free grace. Now here Henry isn't saying that God is unjust in forgiving sinners, for Jesus' death on the cross truly satisfies the righteous judgment of God against our sin. But in the end, we can only be declared blameless because God has graciously taken away our guilt. Verse 9 in our text closes out this thought by stating, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This promise is a wellspring of comfort. God is faithful. Your friends may be faithless. Your employer may be fickle. Your spouse and your children may be failing, but your God Saints, your God is faithful. And it was by his work that you were called into fellowship with Jesus, your Lord. Look at the hand of your faithful God at work for you in these six verses. He gives you grace. 
He enriches you in good works and spiritual gifts. He sustains you to the end. He preserves you so that you stand guiltless on the last day, and he calls you into fellowship with his blessed son because our God is faithful. Brothers and sisters, let these truths comfort your weary mind and heart this morning. Your God loves you. He is faithful, and you can trust him. After Paul gives his greeting, his blessing, and his thanksgiving, he launches into the heart of the letter. Now, there are lots of issues addressed in this letter of 1 Corinthians, but a big one has to do with how the church conducts itself as a body. And here in chapter 1, Paul's initial concern was a report he's heard of division among the believers, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. This is point number three. We are united under one banner. Starting in verse 10. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Paul makes an appeal in the very name of the very Lord he's been describing so gloriously in the first nine verses, that these believers all agree and be united in mind and judgment so that there would be no divisions. Now, this isn't an expectation of total lockstep mental conformity, but a call for consistency in thinking and in resolve when it comes to their shared doctrine and mission. And let's be very clear here. Paul's not calling for a kind of unity, quote-unquote, that ignores serious theological error or personal sin for the sake of keeping the peace. A few chapters later in chapter 5, Paul instructs the church to expel immoral people from their company who profess to be Christians but walk in moral rebellion. In chapter 11, Paul says there actually must be some kind of division in order to know who the genuine believers are. So don't hear Paul calling for a unity of mind and and judgment as a sweeping under the rug of serious doctrinal disagreement for the sake of appearances. That's not what we're called to as believers. Rather, Paul uses the word united here in the sense of being restored, being mended, and put back in order. Why? He's received a report from that the Corinthian believers had begun splintering into factions within the church and were quarreling among themselves. That's the kind of unity he's calling for, is a reunification of these splintered groups within the church. Now, in the pagan world of that time, you would see philosophers or skilled masters of rhetoric gathering disciples and hearers to themselves who were loyal to them exclusively and who would sometimes pick fights with those following other teachers. We don't like your group. We don't like your guy. Your guy's terrible. Your guy's terrible. No, 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 no. There would be a never-ending war of words, sometimes worse, among these groups. Paul received a communication from someone uh, related to a person named Chloe, who we don't hear of anywhere else in Scripture, but who was obviously known to this church, that this worldly practice of division and sniping had made its way into this Corinthian church. These believers were aligning themselves behind specific teachers or evangelists and attacking each other's master. 
Paul describes quarreling or strife in Galatians 5 as a product or fruit of the flesh, as opposed to the fruit of the spirit. He is not having that here. So he speaks to it, he addresses it, and he starts talking about it in verse 12. Verse 12 says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. The original text doesn't actually have the word follow, it just says something like, I am of. I am of Paul, I am of Peter, I am of Apollos. These believers held allegiance to one teacher over another, and this caused conflict. Why were they picking teams? Well, maybe partly due to perhaps who originally baptized them. Some were baptized by one or the other. It may also be because this person preferred Apollos' teaching style. Or this person was a Jewish convert who identified with Peter and his background and his seniority in the church. Maybe this the other person was compelled by Paul's missionary fervor. Then you've got one group who you notice are like super spiritual. And you're like, well, you know, we're on team Jesus. Even though it seems that this even was motivated by pride and a desire to appear above the fray. Paul addresses this by asking a few pointed rhetorical questions in the text, in verse 13. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? Obviously, no. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Which leaves the question, in whose name were these believers baptized? Well, we know Jesus commanded his disciples in Matthew 28 to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They weren't baptized in the name of Paul. They weren't baptized in the name of Peter. He says, you were baptized. You were all baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And don't miss the fact that Paul, in verse 10, appeals to them in the name of the Lord to not cause divisions by aligning themselves solely behind the names of someone who is not the Lord. In other words, arguing over who is the best teacher or spiritual leader is ridiculous. But we do it too, don't we? Now, I don't think anyone is going around here saying, you know, I am of Zane or I am of Travis because that's who baptized them. At least I hope not. If you are, stop it. But we pretty, pretty easily fall into that my team, your team thing, don't we? I am of Askel, or Barber, or Lytton, or Moeller. I am of Piper. I am of MacArthur. I am of Keller. I am of Spurgeon. I am of Calvin. I am of Augustine. Or the really spiritual folks who say, well, yeah, I don't follow men, so I'm of Jesus. Are these faithful theologians and pastors bad? Is following uh, 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 and, and listening to the teaching of a faithful teacher a bad thing? Of course not. Can we benefit from their ministries and their writings? Of course we can. We can even have teachers and writers and, and preachers whom we especially appreciate, but we need to be careful not to slip into factions around our very narrowly defined squad. And look at brothers or sisters who faithfully hold the same gospel confession and serve the same Lord and somehow see them as the enemy. This also raises another point of application for some of us. We, we have to beware 
about preferring a, a podcast preacher to our flesh and blood pastor. And I realize this could be taken as, as uh, uh, self-serving. I believe me, I'm not talking about myself. God has given you pastors, elders, for the purpose of watching over your soul, feeding you with the word of God, and equipping you with, for the work of ministry. You can listen to Alistair Begg or Johnny Mack or Piper or R.C. all day long, benefit from their God-given wisdom, but they don't know you. Your elders do. And family, we, we will let you down from time to time. If you haven't already experienced that, you will at some point. Welcome, you're probably pretty new here. I heard that laugh. But God gave you to us and us to you. And even if we never quite preach as well as your favorite podcast preacher, we don't preach as well as ours either, we're here to love you with the love of Christ as best we can by his grace. And we always appreciate your prayers for our sake in that regard. Paul goes on in verses 14 through 16 uh, in this vein to say he's actually glad he baptized so few people so that he wouldn't unintentionally add fuel to this ridiculous quarrel. Look what verse 14 says. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and, and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. And parenthetical, which I love that it's a parenthetical. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. You can almost imagine, as Paul's dictating this letter, he's like, like trying to think, okay, did I baptize anyone else? Sosthenes may have been like, Stephanus. Oh yeah, Stephan, the household of Stephanus, that's right. Paul's like, I'm glad I didn't, I'm not adding to this ridiculousness. Look what he said. Um, sorry. Look what he says next in verse 17. Oh, the, as, just for a point of detail, Crispus was also a synagogue leader there in Corinth in Acts 18. Gaius is mentioned in Romans 16. Savannah is actually mentioned at the end of this letter. Um, people who they also would know uh, there in Corinth. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, now pause there for just a second. Um, I actually put a pin in that. Verse 17, this, this starts to take us in a different direction. I want to make sure we, we close the loop on this question of teachers and factions. Paul goes on to talk about it a little bit in chapter 3. I want to read that to you. Uh, just to kind of put a button on, excuse me, to put a button on, on that argument there. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not ready yet, for you are still of the flesh. For where there is, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, aren't you merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's workers. 
you are God's field, God's building. Look down at verse 21. He says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So he's like, all of these teachers, we are all here to serve God by serving you. I'm yours. Cephas is yours. Apollos is yours. We're all here as servants. We're nobody. So he, he kind of closes it in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, this is how he wants you to regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We're servants. We're slaves. Don't follow the teachers if the teacher is something special. Follow the one the teacher follows. Follow Jesus. So, verse 17 of chapter 1 then. Sorry about that. Paul starts to shift his argument a little bit and kind of goes into a different direction for the next chapter and a half or so. Um, He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, this is not to say baptism isn't important. Because he emphasizes elsewhere that obedience in baptism is expected. In fact, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus but you refuse to be baptized or keep making excuses to avoid it, then can I remind you, as your brother who loves you, you are sinning. Baptism is a command of God. The command is plain. Don't fight against it. This is a, baptism is a public acknowledgement of the, from the Lord, or commanded by the Lord that he is the Lord. He is your Lord. So I would encourage you, if you are putting off baptism as a believer, for whatever reason, stop. Come get baptized. Make your profession public. In verse 17, Paul clarifies his goal isn't merely to baptize followers for himself, but to proclaim the good news of Jesus. This should be a reminder to us that baptism, while commanded as an act of obedience for all believers everywhere, is not actually what saves us. It's the gospel that is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. The message that God saves ruined sinners by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, as proclaimed in the scriptures in this solely for the glory and praise of God alone. Baptism itself is a proclamation of the gospel, a testimony to the work that has already been done in the heart of the professing believer who testifies that they were, were spiritually dead but were made alive in Christ. At the end of verse 17, Paul gets ready to launch into his next argument, which we won't be able to go into, obviously, today, but here is a brief summary. One of the things that Greco-Roman culture valued is rhetorical wisdom clever philosophical arguments, the ability to speak publicly. Paul begins to unpack in the next several verses that he didn't proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus by using clever rhetoric or wise words that would impress the world around him. That wasn't his goal. Paul's message was simple. His words were plain, so much so that to those who have a mindset on the flesh, this message seems foolish, almost idiotic. Perhaps that's you right now if you're sitting here listening to this sermon, all this stuff about Jesus dying to pay for my sin and God adopting me as his child. That sounds like nonsense. 
If that's you, then I pray that God would give you ears to hear his voice today. Paul says that this message is nothing but foolishness and weakness to those who are perishing in their sin. But for those who are being saved, Christ is the wisdom of God, the power of God. So in verse 17, Paul says his mission is to preach a clear, simple gospel, lest the transforming power of the message of the cross would be lost in Paul's attempt to give the people what they want. In these first 17 verses of Corinthians 1, Paul tells this very inconsistent, frequently confused group of believers that no matter their failures, no matter their sin, they are saints because they were called by God and are secure in Christ Jesus. They will be supplied by God and sustained by God because he is faithful even when they aren't. Their unity is not built around a teacher or a tribe, but on the simple message of a bloody Roman cross that stands empty because the Son of God who died upon it was raised again in victory. This is the gospel that they and we are to proclaim, a message that joins us together with all faithful believers around the world and throughout the entire history of the Christian church. So this is my final exhortation for you this morning, brothers and sisters. Remember who we are. Remember whose we are. And remember what it is that binds us together. We are the redeemed body of Christ called to be saints together because our faithful God has saved us from sin. And he will keep us to the very end for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are pleased to use weak and foolish things to proclaim your message. And I pray that if there are any here today who have never heard this message before, who perhaps have heard it countless times, but it has never sunk in, I pray that your spirit would be at work to open deaf ears and open blind eyes to see and hear the greatness of this gospel message. That we who deserve death have been given life. We who deserve nothing but wrath and judgment have been given grace and mercy in Christ Jesus because our Savior died in our place. Lord, I pray for those who are far away that they would be brought near today. Those who are not your children would call on you as father in faith so that you would receive them that you would draw them to yourself they would hear your voice and respond thank you for your kindness we pray this in Jesus name amen